So the fierce adherence to meritocratic ideologies is one of the most prominent forces reifying legitimacy of white fragility and preventing successful ah, anti-racist praxis. That's the premise today. How the fact that people really won't let go of meritocracy is one of the main reasons that anti-racism is so hard to achieve. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how what it means uh, to have a meritocratic ideology and talk about the ways that white supremacy controls ELT, things that you probably already know if you listen to this podcast. I'm going to give some examples of how white fragility reifies the current power structures of ELT. I'm going to argue for why meritocratic ideologies are at the heart of that white fragility and the field's inability to move forward. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about how meritocracy is pretty much the main reason why anti-racism is so hard to get away from, so hard to put into place, I should say. And then I'm just going to offer some suggestions for how we can get away from that white fragility, from that meritocracy, because it's uh, it's really holding us back. Now, if that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you in the way that I explained it, that's okay. Uh, hopefully, in going through all of these connections, it'll all lock into place. But I hopefully will make this accessible and understandable. Uh, I do urge you to listen pretty carefully because it's a <laughs> perhaps overly complicated argument I'm about to make today. So, in summation, we're going to talk about how meritocracy or meritocratic ideologies, I should say, is one of the main reasons that racism stays in place overall and in English language teaching specifically. So let's start this off by talking about merit. What does merit mean? Well, it's a little cliche to quote the dictionary, but I think it makes sense here. Two of the definitions of merit include character or conduct deserving of reward, honor, or esteem, and the qualities or actions that constitute the basis of one's deserts. Right? Merit is about providing what people deserve. That's at the heart of the word. So when you think of the word and how it's used, right, what do you think? Think merit badges, right, like Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout. I got merit badges. Uh, and you think about national merit scholarships, right, where exceptional students who score above a certain level on, I think usually the PSAT, can receive partial scholarships for college. Mostly, though, it's not even just about the money. It's about being able to say you're a national merit scholarship. And in fact, I was one of those too. I'm not saying this to big myself up. I'm about to speak on this entire episode about how the notion of meritocracy is nonsense. But I want you to know that I'm coming to this as a person who was deemed to have exceptional merit. Anyway, um, although actually didn't get a National Merit Scholarship because when you're black, they give you a National Achievement Scholarship. <laughs> uh, although they changed the name of that recently. So the point is merit means high value, right? If you have exceptional merit, you are more valuable than others. But uh, merit by itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, I don't want to say that all assessments of merit are bad or all assessment is bad, right? Depends on the particular details, but a context-based uh, merit assessment could be appropriate. I wouldn't say that if two people are running a road race together, 
that it is necessarily unfair to say which person finished first or finished faster or something like that, right? If they had the same course, then it should be okay to say that they were fairly judged as to which, in the context of that race, had more merit or who finished faster. One might say, and people often say, that sports is a meritocracy, but I think we all know whether it comes to youth sports or high school, college, professional sports, they're not meritocracies because money is involved, right? The teams with more money have greater success generally. Part of the reason that certain teams are more celebrated when they win is because they have less money. And if there were no difference in money, then underdog stories probably wouldn't happen. All this is to say that within specific contexts, the assessment of merit is not inherently problematic. If you're choosing two items at a store, you're going to choose the one that to you has more merit, and that's not necessarily some sort of inequity or racism or something, regardless of what that company that created the items is doing. No, the problem isn't merit. The problem is when you extrapolate from what you consider to be merit to the value of that entire person or the group that they're in, right? Merit should be discrete, and I say that discrete as in separate, not discrete as in hidden, uh, discrete and contextualized. But generally, merit is extrapolated into a value judgment of a person or a group. And when that happens, the problem isn't merit, the problem is meritocracy. Now, meritocracy is something that we can't say, any, anyone who listens to this podcast will not say that the United States is an actual meritocracy in terms of people with, you know, uh, equal ability and effort receive what they have earned, right? I think anyone listening to this would know that two people with the same quote-unquote ability, whatever that means, is that IQ, I don't know, but let's just say it's ability, and who put in the same amount of effort will not necessarily get the same results depending on their race, depending on their gender, depending on their income, depending on a whole bunch of other things. However, even though we know we don't live in a meritocracy in the United States or really any other country, most Americans believe we do, or in other words, they have an ideology of meritocracy, even if they understand that we don't live in one. The idea of meritocracy has existed forever, but the word we didn't really start using until the 50s when the book came out, which was a novel which was making fun of the idea of meritocracy as a system of social stratification. And of course, the satire was taken and accepted and internalized as a good thing because people are dumb. So meritocracy basically is this idea that uh, there is no discrimination if people are sorted according to their ability and effort. We all know that discrimination still exists, yet we still believe in this. Now, why do we believe in this? That is at the heart of what I'm talking about today. Why do we believe in or why do we want to believe in meritocracy so hard? Uh, there's a couple of quotes I could go to here, but the fact is 
that long-term changes in inequality, so like social mobility and things like that, are usually accompanied by a stronger belief in meritocracy. Basically, people believe harder in the existence of meritocracies when their society is more unequal. And I would argue, and that's the point I'm making today, that the unequal societies that are not meritocratic depend upon the belief in meritocracy in order to operate successfully. Because if everybody stopped believing that society was meritocratic, then society would stop functioning the way it does. So, I mean, we all know some of the examples why the United States is not a meritocracy, right? We know this, right? We know that, I'm just talking about race here because that's my focus, but it's true of other things too. You know, black people don't have lives as long as white people. They don't have as much income. They don't get the same educational outcomes. They don't get the same jobs. All these things are tied together. Um, but we know enough that we can't openly express racism in this country. I mean, it happens, and part of the reason that Trump is making certain white people so upset is because he's so direct about his racism. But if we can turn our racism, our internalized racism, into what we are calling meritocracy, where we can simply say that the people with power and money and so on have earned their way to that place because of what we consider to be a meritocracy, then we don't have to dismantle the structures that have allowed this social inequity to develop. This you can see in all sorts of industries, but my focus is English language teaching, so I'm going to show a couple of ways that racism is reflected there. But just to get, just to return to the main point that we're talking about how meritocracy is what our society depends on to function in the unequal way that it does. So uh, when we're talking about English language teaching and racism, there's a lot that can be said. A lot that you probably already know about. For example, every speaker of color, every learner of English of color especially, is sort of automatically considered deficient in the language. And there's almost nothing that you can do to stop being considered that way, right? We know as Flores and Rosa right? that uh, the whole idea of academic language or standard language uh, is based on this idea, this discourse of appropriateness. But these things are not objective facts, right? They are ideology, ideological perceptions. So... Uh, we are talking about what's wrong with all these learners of English who are usually people of color. But what's really wrong is the way that white listeners fail to understand them. So the way our classes are positioned, we are telling our students, you need to do X, Y, and Z because your English is bad. But what the problem is, is that the people on the street that they need to speak to are not really listening correctly or appropriately themselves. The focus needs to be on the white listener. 
there's of course native speakerism, which I talked about in another episode. Right, those classified as quote unquote native speakers will be prized above other English users. And this goes all the way back to the way my career began. Right? My career began teaching English overseas. Oh, my dog is barking. Hold on. Sorry about that. So I started my career as a native English teacher. That's what I was called, right? That was my value to the field, that I was a native English teacher. Uh, I started, I was 21, didn't know what I was doing. And you've heard me talk about this in almost every episode. I got the job because I was assumed to be an expert in the language, merely because I was born in the United States. This... Of course, you would think, well, it's not racist because I'm black, right? And if I'm black, then something that benefits me cannot be racist. But you see, it was meritocracy that got me that job because, okay, I'm black. And they knew I was black because you have to send pictures to those jobs. But they also knew I went to, the, went to Princeton. And so they decided that my quote-unquote merit was enough to overcome my deficiencies as a black person. Uh... The point I'm going to keep coming back to is that people will make exceptions for people of color, racialized people who they consider to have exceptional merit. People will make exceptions for people who they consider to be one of the good ones. And then they can say, I have black friends, or more likely, I hire black people, I date black people, I am related to a black person, my son is black, or whatever, which then is supposed to give them a pass, right? People know not to commit what others would call explicit behavioral racist acts. People know that the people in Charlottesville are bad, as you heard me say in my presentation, but... If you are benevolent towards exceptional racialized people, then you don't have to dismantle the systems that have allowed you to remain supreme, right? Think about these websites that recruit ELT teachers, ELT professionals. Quoting from Rooker and Ives in 2018, the criteria for the ideal ELT candidate are implied through imagery rather than stated explicitly. The images of teachers suggest that the ideal teacher is young, white, enthusiastic native speaker of English. ELT professionals from countries other than where English is the official language are not considered, and the message is clear. You can get a job if you are young, inexperienced, college graduate, and People who are not native speakers or not quote-unquote native speakers aren't even considered most of the time. Now, I want to be clear. Not, they're not just saying any native speaker. They want a native speaker who is a college graduate. And there's, of course, some classism going on in there. Uh, but I'll leave that to the side for the moment, even though it is really related to this. Even when you have a degree in language studies, however, and you're a professional, ELT educator. White supremacy is still there. See, the lie they tell us is that if you have this exceptional merit, you'll be protected from white supremacy. 
right? Go and be, as they say, twice as good. And you will not have to suffer the way that the others do. When you really believe the meritocracy lie, it forces you to think, well, my people are still deficient because that's the way that society has positioned them. But I can rise above their station. In a way, it leads you to thinking that the only thing that you need to do is take care of yourself. And the system that creates those divisions can stay in place as long as you get to be one of the exceptional people who get a seat at the table, even though they're never really going to let you have a seat at the table. So, you know, what people see as a skilled English language teacher is really just an image of a person who looks a certain way and acts a certain way. There's no point at which one's race no longer renders one of lesser value as an English user. If you're born in the United States, you would thus be considered a native speaker, but uh, we're still viewed as linguistically deficient if we speak a variety of English with less prestige, like African-American English or Black English. So, you know, when people want to communicate that they are quote-unquote, not good English speakers, they often drop into a version of African-American English, right? Think about how many friends or people you know who suddenly start talking a little bit blacker when they want to convey a certain type of attitude, right? I, for much of my life, as you've heard on this podcast, have... People call it code-switching... Uh, I'm not into that phrase anymore. Translanguaging is much better. But I used to speak African-American English around my family much more often because they spoke that more often. And I I guess I still do to some extent. But uh, I realized that I was trying really hard to sound a certain way around my white friends and a certain way around my family, and I just sort of stopped doing that, which is a privilege to do, to be able to make that choice. But I knew that once I had the ability to make it, I made it. All of this is to say, there is no point at which you can escape from white supremacy. You cannot protect yourself from white supremacy. You cannot achieve your way out of white supremacy, right? The only way to escape white supremacy is for white supremacy to go away. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. Now, we've been talking about native speakerism for decades, and again, I already mentioned in my podcast a few weeks, a few episodes ago. Uh, The very first class I took in my master's program nine years ago was about the inner and the outer and the expanding circles of English users. I mean, this was from an article published in 1985. But um, we haven't really gone that much past this idea of the native speaker and the non-native speaker. We're advocating for non-native speakers rather than problematizing the concept of a native speaker anyway. All this is to say is that English language teaching, more than almost any other part of education, is particularly prone to white supremacy 
it's completely tied to colonialism and capitalistic expansion and violence. And then it turns around and tells the victims of that violence that they are deficient in the language they are being forced to speak if they want to have any hope of earning money. And so when this is pointed out, English language teaching professionals get really upset. And that, again, as you've heard in my presentation, is of course white fragility. Now, I hope you all know enough about white fragility if you're listening to this, but for those who don't know, white fragility is basically where such a low level of racial stress sets off defensive moves, including anger, belittling, denial, and all that sort of stuff. ELT has had a few leading scholars challenging the racism in the field for the last 20 years or so, uh, especially people like Kubota and Lin. Philipson has been on the edges of that, although he's more on the colonialism side. But the field is still mired in a white supremacy. I remember when I was at the conference in November and I went on school tour and on the school tour we got to see what was essentially a Japanese private school. Really fascinating experience and um, that school classes were taught in both English and Japanese which I thought was good. The teachers, some of them were American, some of them were Japanese. And the students, you know, spoke, I hate to use the word good or bad, but they spoke very proficient English, I would say. Um, but re recently, the school had been told that they were not meeting a high enough level of academic standards. And so... The people who had been running the school, which was an experienced Japanese woman and her, I guess I would say, lieutenant. So they brought in a British man to make the school better. This person wasn't necessarily any more experienced than the Japanese women who were running the school. But he certainly gave the school a different image. He also talked over them in every time that we spoke to the three of them in one room, which was, you know, says a couple of things. But the point is, even in school run by extremely experienced professionals from a different country, they still weren't seen as, as valuable as a white man. So back to white fragility. Some people might say that the tools that white people employ to manage their discomfort are just sort of some subconscious avoidance. But as uh, an author named Pekawa writes, these tools are not a passive resistance, but much more of an active protection of their hegemonic stories and white supremacy, right? Don't let white people off the hook with this. White fragility is not some innocent thing, right? The white tears that show up when they're challenged are not some play thing, right? That is what has enforced violence for centuries. We only are calling it white fragility recently, but this fragility, this fear is the precursor to rage and violence. White fragility isn't a joke. 
it's irritating. It's kind of pathetic, but it's not a joke. Uh, there's another study that I cite a lot by Shalgun Soga, talking about how the, they were interviewing students who had dropped out of a free program, asking them why. All the teachers said, well, you know, child care, you know, they can't get here, public transportation. The students said, all the teachers think that we aren't very smart. They don't teach very quickly. They assume we want things we don't want. And we got fed up and we left. And then the, inter the scholars very cleverly asked the teachers and administrators this. And administrators say, we work really hard on our classes. Because some reason that means that they don't have to listen to what the students actually need. This sort of thing happens a lot. And in fact, it was that article that inspired the altruistic shield. But the point is, at the core of all this stuff is a dismissal of the actual agency of the people of color. I'm getting off topic here. In order to explain the specific white fragility of English language teaching, I need to get back to my main point, which is about meritocracy. So, let's talk about the ELT field. People don't have a lot of money in ELT, right? Do you have a lot of money? I left teaching language because I wasn't making that much money. I have a different job now, which we all need to talk about. I am studying so that I can go back to the field with enough credentials to maybe make some more money. That's not the only reason, but it's just, I'm just being honest here. I'm, I'm studying this and, you know, I'm have a growing family and you know I need to pay the bills and I understand that for ELT professionals sometimes I worry that I'm telling ELT professionals to be better and I'm just telling people who are struggling hey be better and they're going to be like leave me alone dude I don't have any money on the other hand that's just an excuse we still have the opportunity to make better decisions for ourselves and for the field and in fact, the field being less racist would be better for everyone. Indeed. The only reason that leaving the racism of the field in place would not benefit the workers is if the workers benefit from the racism. You get what I'm saying? So we've always, we've long heard about English as a lingua franca. Although some people might refer to it instead as a killer language, and I'm sort of on that side. The fact of the matter is, though, for most people in the field, it is not a shortcut to wealth. There's not a lot of departments hiring in TESOL around the country or the world. And regular ELT positions, at least outside of the K-12 world, they're not paying anything. I mean, come on, you've heard this stuff. I remember I was at a conference for, from my grad school, must have been 2014, and, you know, they're trying to... It was their first year talking about nav navigating an ELT career, and the uh, they put up a slideshow with a range of how much money our graduates are making. And well, let me tell you, I think the highest number on there was like fifty-seven. Um, that was a few years ago, but the point is, 
this is not a field you go into to be making six figures or something like that. So, if the field is basically another extension of the gig economy, gig economy being a cute word for employers not paying workers enough, their perception is that there's not a lot of work and not a lot of money to go around. So, in English language teaching, the assumed expertise of the white quote-unquote native speaker is one of the few commodities that most ELT professionals have, right? Think about this. If you're an ELT professional and you're white and you're a native speaker, or you're classified as a native speaker, that quote-unquote native speaker status is one of the few things you have that might get you additional income, and you need income. So if I'm telling you, you need to challenge that racism. And you, in your heart, in your morals, agree with me. But you're looking at your paycheck and you're thinking, I can't, I can't do anything that's going to look less than that. That actually, to some extent, is a rational decision. I'm not saying it's justified, but I at least understand. I empathize with it. So if challenging systemic racism even if it aligns with the moral compulsion you have, that fear of loss is more powerful, right? You know, you know, in behavioral economics is loss aversion, where they've shown that you give people the chance to win 100 or the chance to lose $100, you have to up that possible winning to, I think, something like twice as much. People won't People are much more afraid of losing $100 than they are excited to win $100. That fear of loss is much a much stronger motivator than a possible gain. There's a study that showed that not only are people more motivated by a fear of loss, but that fear often correlates with unethical behavior. So if people think they're going to lose something, they might go against their ethics or their morals now. It's up to philosophers to decide whether allowing systemic racism to continue because you're afraid of losing money is more unethical or immoral. Probably more the latter. But you see what I'm saying here. So, I get it, right? That white fragility is based on that loss aversion. That loss aversion is based on that fear, that scarcity in the field. And that scarcity in the field is what the field depends on. Now, there's a lot of fields that depend on systemic racism. Um, And there's a lot of fields that are competitive where there's not a lot of money to go around. English language teaching is not the worst career on the planet or anything like that. But this career specifically, if you challenge systemic racism... To truly challenge it, it would mean ceding power to racialized speakers of English. Now, think about how these programs are run, how they're structured. They offer often uh, uh, survival English classes. Those classes basically are like, how do you go to the grocery store? How do you fill out forms? How do you go to the doctor? I'm not saying people don't need to do that. But a lot of these programs struggle with the transition. They really just give people the very basics. Uh, you know, enough so that they can maybe attain a job as an apartment cleaner. 
but this is still tied back to the idea at the core of our field that many of these learners are deficient and they don't actually deserve to have much more than basic subsistence. No one thinks that these people deserve to be in the gutter. But do we really think these people deserve to have the same lives that we have, right? You might say, yes, of course I believe that. What are you doing? I don't mean you, literally you. I mean as just the proverbial you. What are you doing to give them the same institutional power that you have as a white native speaker? Just think about it. What are you, in your school, in your job, doing to give them the same power as you? Right? If you are a white native speaker. That's a question to ask. So, the white fragility in the field not only protects financially desperate educators, but also the culture that believes these students deserve only to barely survive. However, if a student shows, and now I get back to the point, see, I told you I was going to do this. If a student shows exceptional merit, right, if they rise above the rest, then maybe they deserve to advance beyond mere survival. It doesn't mean their entire group deserves it. But if someone shows that they are worthy, then we shall bestow extra rewards upon them. I don't know why I'm suddenly speaking like I'm in the Bible, but whatever. Racialized individuals need to prove they have a level of merit worthy of what the fields provides. White uses of English without question or hesitation. And to challenge that core meritocratic ideology is to unleash a white fragility fueled by deep fear and ultimately insecurity that is both rational and not. In some ways, it might be true that white ELT professionals have some level of awareness that if they were not provided with racial linguistic advantages, they would actually deserve to lose. However, the problem is not the particular way that arbitrary and discriminatory deservedness is determined, but it's the ideology in which only individuals with certain attributes deserve care and consideration in the first place. So I said all of this, and I said I was going to talk about anti-racism. Well, let's do that. So... Dr. Kendi, Ibram Kendi, recently wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in that book, towards the end, he has a short list of ways to ensure anti-racism. And my main point with this entire thing that I'm saying is that meritocracy, almost by definition, these ideologies, prevents anti-racism because they are antonyms. To believe that only certain people, people of exceptional merit, deserve to be treated equally doesn't make sense as a sentence, right? As a sentence saying that people with exceptional merit deserve better treatment is unequal. And in this country and around the world, the people with exceptional merit just by chance happen to be white, right? Think about it. Kendi's conceptualization of anti-racism centers on collective action. And even Robin D'Angelo would tell you that individualism is one of the reasons that our racism stays so powerful. Because we just say, it's that guy's fault that racism is here. It's Trump's fault that everyone is racist. It's not the systems. It's the bad guys. And hey, Trump is a bad guy. 
But that doesn't mean, if we were to get rid of Trump, that the system would go away. Trump is a symptom. He's not the disease. So, anti-racism, though, it's about policies. It's not about people. To enact anti-racism, we have to admit that it's bad policy, not bad people. We have to find policy that can eliminate racial inequity, find out what group has the power to institute anti-racist policy. We have to work with anti-racist policymakers to institute policy. It's all about policy, right? Now somebody says, well, you know, I don't have any power to make policy. I'm just a teacher. I don't know. Policy. Well, that's nonsense. You can find out who's making policy and you can combine with others to push that policy forward. Right? The whole thing in the United States is that we have a false binary. We have a binary between racist and not racist. This is a binary that's nonsense. Not racist is just a good way for people to use colorblind racism. Colorblind racism is an ableist term. Some people call it veiled racism. Whatever you want to call it, it's the type of racism where people pretend that race doesn't exist, which is still racist. So race and racist and not racist is not the binary. Everybody wants to try and be not racist. You need to be anti-racist and they're not the same thing. Right? Because frankly, if you spend all your time talking about how you're not racist, you're probably just racist because most people are racist. I'm racist too in the sense that we're socialized in this. That's the thing. Now, if somebody pulls that out of context and says, oh, Justin said he was racist. Okay, fine. But that's not what I mean. Just want to make the point. One of the most insidious ways that uh, meritocracy reifies racism that the people who are praised for their extraordinariness, for their exceptional merit, these are people who may have skills that would greatly benefit anti-racism as a movement. But they're told that they're exceptional, that they're different from their people. And they have every incentive to turn their back on them. You can't really be one of the good ones if you're reaching back to try to help the rest of your people gain additional power. That's not going to make people in power comfortable, and they don't like that. So if you do that, you're not comfortable. The reason that, you know, one of the reasons many white people really liked Obama is because he didn't really make white people uncomfortable, you know. Um, He made some white people uncomfortable. He made the quote-unquote bad white people uncomfortable, but he made the good white people comfortable. So... Um, to be successful in a society that adheres to meritocracy is not to generate collective anti-racist action, but to generate individual financial success. And individual financial success in our zero-sum version of capitalism, which is another way of just saying capitalism, is the only way to be considered worthwhile to have exceptional merit. If we try to create policy and it fails... Candy warns us not to just blame the people and say, well, that person screwed up. Well, that's just why it didn't happen. Keep working on refining the policy. Do not scapegoat. I understand why people scapegoat. However, to finish this off, I've said a lot of stuff 
but I haven't really given anybody any advice, right? Like, what's what are some things that we can do? Because ultimately, I made all these points, and hopefully the argument makes sense to you, right? Because to sum it all up, the argument from start to finish is that merit is fine. Judging people's entire worth by how good they do at certain tasks is not worthwhile and only creates division. Meritocracy leads to racism because you will claim that someone who's exceptional at something deserves it and that just ends up with people of pe- people of privilege having more power as they do or just justifies their keeping their power that leads to white fragility and in English language teaching which is a precarious field white fragility is even stronger because if we don't have racism then people who are in power will do some. Nobody wants that to happen. And finally, the definition of meritocracy is such that anti-racism is an antonym to it. Right? Hopefully that made some sense. Got you thinking about something. But let me give you something to do. So, if you are a language teacher, you're teaching the language, teaching the history, teaching the culture, the words you're using. But if you do that, you don't teach colonialism, you don't teach capitalism, you're just approving of these actions. Um, you know, everyone knows, not everyone, a lot of people know about culturally sustaining pedagogies. Look into that if you're a language teacher. If you're listening to my podcast, you probably already know about it, but maybe share this with somebody else, and then they can learn about it, right? There are, and you could say, well, that doesn't give me specific lesson plans to make. You can make a lesson plan, right? This is not the podcast for how to make a lesson plan. People use that as an excuse, I think, sometimes. They're like, well, I'm listening to this, or I'm reading about teaching, and they didn't give me what to do with my lesson plan. You know how many lesson plans there are on the internet? You'll be okay. Um, You have to challenge the white supremacist hegemony of your textbooks and materials. If you have any power to choose your materials in your school, choose them. If you don't, collectively act with your colleagues to change the materials. I worked at a horrible, horrible school seven years ago, a place where they really treated students terribly. But you know what they had? They had meetings where you could ask for different materials. Even in that school, a school that I was happy to leave, you can change the materials, right? So don't just say, well, you know, they told me I have to use whatever. Use what you are forced to use and bring in something else also. Don't tell me you don't have any power. Also, value the students' voices as much as yours or more so. Learn every single one of their names. Don't say, oh, I don't know names. Well, all these things, these are very small things that uh, contribute to the white supremacy of the field. Now, assessment is a difficult thing. How do you assess without falling into that meritocratic trap, right? You give someone a test, someone is going to do the best on the the test, right? Well, sure, you're going to have to assess to some extent. Some people don't believe in tests, that's kind of stupid. But I would not generate an atmosphere where people are competing. If they go outside of the room and they want to compete with each other, there's probably not much you can do. Maybe, and this is just an idea I have, urge the students to 
you can aggregate the scores and say, here's what the class got as an average. I'm hoping that we can improve as a class. And then they can work together as a team to improve their scores. That's just one way to deal with the fact that assessment seems to generate meritocracy. Just an idea. Finally, there's employment. If you're looking for a job, don't take a native speaker only job. If you already have a native speaker only job, urge them to change that. If they can't change it, look for a different job. If you are so fenced in that you must work at a native speaker only job, try to get them to hire people who aren't white. The point being, push the people in power to do things differently. You should examine your context as frequently as possible to see if these sort of things are just sort of ongoing or if they're developing or changing. And make sure that, especially if you work for a place where the entire power structure is white native speakers, that you're doing whatever you can to challenge that or upset the apple cart in some way. The people in power need to have less power unless they're using their power to give it to others who don't have it. If you're a manager especially, you could change the curriculum, decenter white supremacist hegemony, and instruct that the language be taught in a way that acknowledges and indeed focuses on its past and present as an arm of oppression. No English-only policies. All right, reframe the teaching of the language from one that just uncritically enforces standards to one that, while still informing of rules and common usage, does not shame or disparage for the use of unstandardized <laughs> forms. Advocate for freedom from standardization among both teachers and students. The whole point of this podcast is to move against standardization. I am not against standards. I'm against the process of standardization because that is marginalization and oppression. And in the field, if you go to a conference, push for more scholars of color. Who is giving those plenaries? Especially black and brown scholars, right? Especially dark-skinned scholars, right? Ask questions if a scholar is promoting deficit ideas. Do not leave race out of the discussion. Don't let people pivot to culture. If you are invited to participate on a panel, do not sit on a panel if it's all white or all native speakers. Discuss race and racism in your public work even if your research isn't about race. And don't pay for any journals that support racial hierarchies. Disseminate articles and journals that counter these ideals. There's a lot you can do, all right? People say, I don't have any power. That is nonsense because that's exactly what they want you to believe. They want you to believe that you're not exceptional. The whole point of all of this Meritocracy is nonsense because we all have the ability to be exceptional, even if they don't see it, right? By definition, if we're all exceptional, then no one's exceptional. But the point is, no one is better than anybody else. We need to work together if we want anti-racism to take hold. If we want white fragility to go away, then you need to give it up. And power needs to be ceded. And I understand how hard it is in the ELT field I know because I don't teach language right now. I get it. You know, my wife was, was right. Like, oh, I wasn't going to be able to pay the bills. 
But I understand after an entire life of being considered a person of exceptional merit, what a lie that was to get me to want to be one of the quote-unquote good ones so that I didn't turn around and bring the rest of my people with me. They only want a few of us so they can say that they did their part. Meritocracy is the barrier to anti-racism. Meritocracy is just the way that racism represents itself in our lives. Yeah, there's the ugly cartoon show coming out of the White House. Ignore that nonsense as much as you can, although I'm sure the policies affect us. Pay attention to meritocracy. When you hear talk, people talking about exceptional merit, when people are special, when, pe- when black individuals, brown individuals, Asian individuals, whatever, are singled out, especially by white people and by white publications, as being the best of those fields. That's not bad. Applaud those scholars, applaud those people, and then wonder why the people and places that are honoring them are not doing more to give power to individuals outside of their groups. I've gone on too long. I hope that what I said tonight makes some sense. Ultimately, meritocratic ideologies white fragility and racism, they're all about entitlement. That's really what they are, entitlement. People see the world how it is, and for both the oppressors and the oppressed, it's easiest to determine that how things are is the way that they should be. So that means the people in power are entitled to keep it. You can use whatever lens you want to analyze this. I've given you another way to analyze it. And then hopefully after you've heard this today, you will think about the way that meritocracy is represented almost everywhere in our lives and understand how connected to racism and white fragility that it is. But the conclusion is the same no matter how you look at it. People feel that some are worthy of support and care and love and that some are not. It may occasionally seem like this isn't the case, but I believe in the value of ELT as a field, at least the potential value of it. And I just want to change its policies and its practices so that it shows as much consideration for the racialized as it does for those in power. It might be an impossible dream, and maybe it will never be realized, but the field of ELT It owes its minoritized population a true concerted effort at anti-racism because they, or we I should say, like everyone else, are deserving of the love that we show to white folks, whether or not we have exceptional merit. Peace out. (laughs) 